I'm Peter Stockland. Welcome to the Word Work Podcast, where we talk about words with people whose work is with words. Writers and teachers, journalists and activists, musicians and linguists, politicians and preachers, thinkers and talkers, and anyone else whose daily bread relies on the use, sometimes abuse, of words. My guest on this episode of Word Work is Kaylin Ford, who in her young life has combined a career as a senior policy advisor to Global Affairs Canada with her work as a humanitarian and the winner of multiple awards for her contributions to a documentary shining a light on forced labor in China. But in 2019, this holder of master's degrees in international relations and international law from George Washington University and the University of Oxford, respectively, was, as she puts it, publicly destroyed during her candidacy in an Alberta election campaign when the New Democratic Party and then the media labeled her a white supremacist. In mid-November 2020, she filed a $7 million defamation and punitive damages lawsuit against those responsible for the allegations. Our conversation explored what it means to live in a society where the abuse of language is a path to the abuse of power. Kaylin Ford, thank you so much for joining WordWork. You're in uh, Calgary, I'm in Montreal, but through the magic of how and when we live and where we live, uh, we're able to talk to each other through our computers. So, <laughs> <I guess laughs> Well, it's that's... a real pleasure, and thank you for having me. I wanted to start just by reading a, a brief statement, and then I'll, I'll kind of swerve away from that but but come back to it and it's from uh, Joseph Pieper's long essay Abusive Language Abusive Power which you actually alerted me to and I rushed out and, and bought it it's the but, perfect essay to tee up this conversation it, it, it's he's so quotable and there's so many uh, little nuggets in it that, that, that serve but the one I want I just wanted to start with towards the end of the essay uh, Abusive pa- Language Abusive Power where he says the natural habitat of truth is found in interpersonal communication. Truth lives in dialogue, in discussion, in conversation. It resides, therefore, in language, in the word. Consequently, the well-ordered human existence, including especially its social dimension, is essentially based on the well-ordered language employed. A well-ordered language here does not primarily mean its formal perfection, even though I tend to agree with Karl Krauss when he says that every correctly placed comma is decisive. I was reminded when I uh, read that last uh, that last part. I think it, there's a great quote from Flaubert, uh, Gustave Flaubert, when he was asked how uh, how he had spent the day, and he said, "Well, I spent the morning putting a comma in, and the afternoon taking it out," <laughs> <laughs> which which I've always uh, which I've always liked. It's highly relatable. Yeah, <laughs> I want to have that citation as kind of a, a frame for our, for our conversation. And as I said, I will come back to it. But I wanted to start by asking you. Um, You've described yourself on social media as a writer in exile, and I, I sense there's some irony at work there, I think, being, being employed. But I wanted to know, what, what do you mean by that? We think of writers being in exile as from a Latin American dictatorship or the old days of the Soviet gulag. How are you in exile? Where are you exiled to? What are you exiled from? Um. That's a good question. 
I'm, I would count myself among the ranks of uh, what we now often refer to as the targets of cancel culture. Um, and that experience is very much a feeling of one of internal exile, uh, which makes it somewhat difficult to explain because you haven't moved to a new geographic location, but it's a state of having been sort of cast out of the ranks of respectable society, I suppose, and no longer feeling as though I belong in the world. And there's a backstory there, which if you're not familiar with, is probably also very relevant to our conversation today. But that being the case, I'm trying to make the most of it. As Victor Hugo experienced when he was exiled by Napoleon, it, it provides a quite a unique vantage point for observing the world. Hugo sort of celebrated his exile after three years. He's talked about how the exiles seem as though they, they mature quickly, he wrote, as though they're close to some sort of sun. And he said, I'm paraphrasing here, that he could see clearly the, the liniments of all that people call disasters, histories, success, uh, the great machinery of providence. And for that reason, he's thankful to Mr. Napoleon for exiling him and God who chose him. And so that's that's sort of the um, where I've found myself these last nearly two years, I suppose. And, uh, and in the interim, I'm... Um, uh, well, I'm I'm writing and working very slowly on a book, adding commas in the morning and removing them in the afternoon, and um, and writing a documentary as well. Mm. Now, I wonder you say that that sense is in, in the last in the last couple of years, and obviously the events around your your candidacy and the lawsuit that you've launched and so on, uh, where where you were defamed. At least you'll ask the courts to determine that you were um, in, in the course of uh, of your political engagement. But I, I was curious whether that sense of exile, is it a, only a recent phenomena driven by those events? Or was it during your time as a policy advisor for the federal government? Um, was it when you were at Oxford during your, your academic life? Was it when you were working on the screenplay that won, uh, won many awards? Has, has that sense of exile been there for a number of years? Is it an immediate thing? Or is it something that began as a kind of niggling feeling and is, and is now as a result of those events, far more powerful? <laughs> These are very profound questions that you're asking. Um, I guess the appropriate way to answer that is to say that, in a way, don't we all feel that this world is a kind of exile? I think that's a feeling that I've always been acutely aware of. Um, and I, But I think that's a near universal experience, that, that state of flungness or thrownness into the world and the feeling that it's not our real home. I think I've always had that, but doesn't everybody? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I wonder. Um, s- some people seem to to make the world their home, whether it should be or not. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> that's that might be a bit of a swerve. Um, that, that, and that may be true. And I guess I can I can say I've never been one of those people who's felt very at ease in this world. I think it's the fact of the impermanence of worldly things has always um, been a reality that I find myself in deep confrontation with, and. And the, the experience of exile that I've described, which has really been my, my experience over the last two years, as I said, I, I don't think I've always had that to the same degree, but um, it has been a common feature of my life that I've always identified with exiles. Um, I've spent most of my adult life, in fact, my entire adult life, working with refugees and asylum seekers who fled often religious or political persecution under communist regimes. Um, I think the literary figures and historical figures who I tend to identify with are people who were um, variously exiled or wrongly killed or imprisoned. And so that's that identification has always been there. Yeah. Is it a political 
exile or, or is it an existential exile or is it some combination of both without getting into the all the, the details of a legal situation that you're that you have initiated and we need to make that clear against people that that you feel did you wrong uh, let me put it this way when i when i read the media accounts of that it struck me that what you were trying to do was engage in inquiry. Because I think at one point in, in, a, in a back and forth exchange, you said, look, this is not a rhetorical question. I really want to know. And I'm wondering, is it, is it a political exile? Is it a, or an existential exile? Or is it, is it in, in some ways, an epistemological exile? That your way of wanting to know the world is very different from the common understanding of what 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 the world should know. I would agree with that. And and it may be useful for your listeners to understand some of this background again because it is I think highly highly relevant to this discussion. Um I was a political candidate in Alberta in the 2019 provincial election. I was running against the NDP's then justice minister in a swing riding. And I was, well, in the belief, of, in, in my view and that of my campaign team, uh, based on the internal polling, we were on track to win. A month before the election, Press Progress, which is an organization that's affiliated with the NDP and serves as their de facto media arm, um, this is my characterization, um, they published an article in which they said that they were given by an anonymous source excerpts of a private conversation from years earlier uh, in which they said that I was complaining about the treatment of white supremacist terrorists and echoing the language of white nationalists. And as evidence, they, uh, they had, I think, about five, sentence, five sentences torn out of a private conversation which they had edited deceptively and redacted and stripped away all of the original context uh, and then presented to their, to their readers in this sort of disjointed form with a new context overlaid on top. Uh, I was at the time pursuing a master's degree in international human rights law. I was living in Europe during a migrant crisis. Um, I had previously done a master's degree in international affairs. I uh, specialized in international security studies, so I studied counterterrorism. And I was engaged in a kind of dialectical academic discussion about how to combat far-right radicalization. Um, so um, that was used then to argue that I was essentially that I was sympathetic to white supremacy. Um, a media storm was ignited uh, within hours um, it was clear that this was going to be a problem for the party and I had to resign my candidacy. It took four hours from the time that this story was initially published to the time my candidacy ended. And um, I, well, I won't, won't dwell too much on the <laughs> pretty harrowing experience that followed, but um, I, I think several dozen news articles, possibly hundreds of news articles were printed essentially saying that I'd promoted white supremacy or that I was myself a white supremacist, that I was sympathetic to terrorists and so on. When I attempted to respond to these accusations on a radio show, far left activists mobilized to try to get the radio program canceled and to have the host driven off the air or force her to apologize merely for giving me a platform to defend myself against these false accusations. So. But I, you know, as a consequence of that, I've been, uh, my employment prospects have been very severely circumscribed over the last two years, so I'm self-employed, and I sort of became a persona non grata. Not because many people, I think, sincerely believed these accusations, 
but because the force uh, uh, and the nature of them terrified people. People became afraid of associating with me, lest they face some kind of public blowback as well. So, so this is this is I think relevant to our conversation today because we're talking about if we're talking about abuse of language, abuse of power, to use Joseph Pieper's term. This is on the one hand, I think these tactics are a pretty explicit attempt to tell people that there are ideas that cannot be discussed in good faith, even in private, without the risk of basically ending your career and become being socially ostracized. So it's an attempt to foreclose the possibility of examining facts um, and asking the, you know, certain questions. And they do this and they and then they sort of affect this by manipulating language themselves, I think often quite disingenuously. So this is very much the sort of, it's an example of what Pieper describes as, as the people who are doing this, who would mischaracterize others' views in such a way, their words have ceased to have any connection with truth. They're not really concerned with what's true. What they're concerned with is power and controlling what people are allowed to say, to think, even in private. So that's, a, that's I think, one of the challenges that we're facing today. And these tactics are incredibly effective. Yeah. Just from a purely journalistic point of view, I noticed in the material I was reading, this technique that, that gets used so often now, where the accusation is stated as fact. There was a headline, and I, I don't have it directly in front of me, but it was to the effect of Ford's white supremacist comments queried or, or attacked or, right. or, you know, forward under attack for white supremacist contact. Right. This, was, this was the CBC's headline was star UCP candidate resigns over white supremacist comment. And, and I, my immediate reaction to that was that if I had working on the desk or even as a reporter back in the day, as we say, turned in a, a piece of journalism like that, some ancient Scotsman on the desk with nicotine-stained fingers would have come over to my desk and said, a laddie, that's an accusation, not a fact. Yes. You, if you're going to do that, you put it in quotation marks. But we don't even <laughs> seem, just at a pure journalistic level now, we don't even seem to think that words need to be given the benefit of the context that even quotation marks can can convey right i mean that's that's the root of what what's going on here that that's the most fundamental basic mundane sidewalk level of it don't you think oh absolutely yes and and in the end again the the more extraordinary thing about that particular headline was the only comments i'd made about white supremacy was that it is odious and a perverse form of reasoning Mm -hmm. um, and this was characterized by our national broadcaster as white supremacist comments. It mm -hmm. clearly gives the, the reader the impression that I'm a white supremacist or I'm endorsing white supremacy. Um, and, and, and the CBC, uh, you'd, you'd also noted this earlier, the CBC then obtained other, after my resignation, they published another article about private conversations that I'd had years earlier discussing pride parades. And in this conversation, uh, my interlocutor had asked, uh, we were, I think, discussing why conservative political candidates, why there's a general expectation that they participate in pride parades. And, um, and I was asked what I think about that. And I said, well, let's, let's approach this as a, from, a as a devil's, from a devil's advocate perspective. Let's actually have a, a, a conversation about this with the aim of trying to arrive at, at the truth. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and I said, 
playing devil's advocate, which you know anyone familiar with this sort of style of conversation understands, sometimes you're staking out more extreme positions than you ordinarily would um, for the purpose of the argument. Uh, and I said something like, according to the CBC report, I don't actually have the records of these conversations. So I'm, um, let's assume that what they published was, was accurate for the moment. I said something like, well, pride parades had their roots in the Stonewall as a commemoration of the Stonewall riots and are a, a celebration of transgression or something. And then I said, what's their redeeming quality? And I said, that's not a rhetorical question. That's not a statement of my values. It's, a, it's an actual question. Uh, and I'm eliciting an actual answer so that we can engage. And, and the CBC reporters didn't seem to understand the implications of saying that this is not a rhetorical question. They actually thought somehow that was something insidious. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it did strike me that, that many people seem to have, don't seem to understand what kind of dialectical dialogue looks like. And, and in that sake, sense, I suppose maybe I am um, epistemologically somewhat in a minority uh, in that that's my, my disposition is that I'm, I, um, I tend to evaluate statements not on the basis of whether they're popular or safe positions to hold. I think when confronted with a proposition or an opinion, um, I try to evaluate them in light of what is true. And I, I don't know that there are very many people who try to do that. It certainly seems that there are not a lot sometimes. I hope I'm wrong. I'm wondering whether you think part of, of what's going on here is a, a new form of abuse of, uh, of language, of, uh, abuse of power, in, this, in the sense of its technological roots. You, you alluded to these being private conversations over, presumably over like Facebook Messenger or some form like that, that normally if it were over the back fence, it would have disappeared into the clouds. You know, unless you leave a, a card in a private men's club in London in the 19th century that says Oscar Wilde poser somdomite, um, you know, the, these kinds of things, just they disappear of their own accord, but now they don't. And so you can go back and only one side has bothers to keep them or has access to them. Is that, is that something new or is it an old impulse just dressed up in zero and one binary language or, or is something new happening there? The impulse is, is not new, certainly. Um, and there are, there are many historical antecedents to the kinds of, to what we call cancel culture. It, it, it has many, many antecedents. If we go back to the French Revolution, for example, or to, uh, I mean, these are, these are ultimately Leninist tactics in many ways. Um, the, the cultural revolution in China is, is a parallel that I draw quite frequently uh, in that many of the same dynamics are at play. A person might be reported on by their neighbors or coworkers or friends or sometimes family members for thinking the wrong thing in private for or possessing some otherwise innocuous article or artifact uh, and they would be labeled um, rightists or counter-revolutionaries and then publicly humiliated forced to engage in is to engage publicly in expressions of contrition so forced confessions um, to criticize their own thoughts and the effect of this was basically like pour décourager les autres, right? Like you're trying to scare other people mm -hmm. by showing them what happens if you think the wrong thing, if you say the wrong thing. Um, certainly the, the, the digital era changes the ways that this is carried out because so much of our lives are lived online. So 
um, a vast quantity of information about us is transmitted and stored in a medium that um, can be preserved oh, well, at least <laughs> at least what currently seems indefinitely um, so that increases the potential for this kind of thing and I think it also quite dangerously erodes the boundaries between public and private spheres and this has always been uh, an aim of um, totalitarians and aspiring totalitarians is to to break down that barrier between our private lives and, and public expressions or private thoughts even and technology effaces that barrier much more effectively than than any totalitarian regime of the 20th century could dream of i wonder too though in whether it doesn't efface the, the part of us that that for cultural reasons or what, ontological reasons, whatever reasons we want to ascribe, would say, look, I don't repeat private conversations unless the person is present to correct me, or I, I don't have the context for that, so I won't repeat a private conversation. Whereas the, 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 the nature of the technology, its disembodiedness, allows it to be used, to mix a metaphor, as a blunt instrument against the other person without any feeling of responsibility. Well, you said it, you know, <laughs> did I? Do you know what I mean? Like you, the, the very nature of the, of the communication, its, it's ephemeralness allows it to be used in a very contradictory way or paradoxical way as a blunt instrument because, well, you, you said it to me, so there I'm al- therefore I'm allowed to, to, to repeat it. Um, in the same sense that like in, you're, you have a master's in law, so I'm not, you know, I don't want to pretend I know more about the law than I do, but I do know from years in journalism that publication is actually any form of communication across the back fence on up. But there's an, I hate this term, but there's an empowerment that seems to happen with those kind of messages. I've got you now. Is that right? Or am I, am I extending that a little bit too far? Well, there's, okay, so there's two things that, that you've just caused me to think about. One is um, I've uh, recently was reading Lenny um, Gifald's "I See Satan Fall Like Lightning," which is a, a absolute masterpiece. And if you haven't read it, I would I would recommend it very highly. And he's uh, Girard is best known for his development of um, mimetic theory, which is the process by which we we sort of the, we imitate the desires of others, and how when mimetic rivalries intensify to an unbearable degree. A scapegoating mechanism kicks in. This is anyway. This is this is sort of one of the broad themes of the book. But but within it, he's discussing. He at one point compares the dual miracles. I'm putting miracles in quotations here, of Apollonius of Tyana and of Jesus when he's trying to prevent the stoning of the, of the adulterous woman. Apollonius of Tyana um, incited a stoning of of sort of an old beggar as a miracle to cure Ephesus of a plague. And, and what what came out in reading this was just a, there was a very small note that um, in, un, you know, under Moses's law, that, that stonings were sometimes sanctioned, but the certain conditions had to be met. They had to be a response to clearly defined crimes, right? So sort of something like a principle of legality still applied here. The crimes need to be clearly understood and codified, and they no longer are um, in the in sort of trials by media. Uh, the, the crimes are ever shifting, and maybe we can talk about that later. Um, so stonings were sometimes sanctioned for clearly defined crimes, but the accusers, at least two of them, had to be the first to throw the stones. And this rule existed to minimize the risk of false accusations, because there's an immense 
moral burden that lies on those who initiate a stoning, knowing that this person will invariably be killed once initiated. And so the fact that the accusers had to stake their own names and reputations on making these accusations and throwing the first stones is significant and it prevents false accusations. And the internet um, allows people to make these accusations anonymously. The accusations against me were made by an anonymous source in an unbylined article. So, so both of my accusers in that sense um, were completely anonymous and faced um, no repercussions uh, and had to take no responsibility for the truth of what they were saying. But they initiated the what is sort of, in effect, a digital lapidation process. One of the other interesting things about that article is Jihald is discussing um, once the stoning begins, once the first stone is cast, and then the second, it becomes much easier for others to join in. This is the power of uh, mimetic contagion, right? Once there is a model, it becomes much easier to follow. So the first stone is the, the most difficult to cast for that reason, it has no model. So Apollonia, Apollonius of Tyana tried to invite people to participate in a stoning. And Jesus, of course, took the opposite approach. He emphasized to people, um, that, that uh, the first stone, the significance of the first stone and the moral responsibility of casting it. And, um, and in so doing, he deterred people from participating. But then a, a positive form of mimetic contagion occurred wherein people would drop the stones that they were holding in their hands and walk away. And that then became the model that was emulated so that soon there was no one left to accuse or to throw stones at the adulterous woman. And, and it occurred to me that the internet allows the first, the negative form of mimetic contagion to occur. You see everyone throwing sort of stones in a sense, um, and it's very easy to pile on and to want to, to participate in that. Often people participate, sometimes they do it out of a desire to destroy and um, just to sort of enjoy the humiliation of others. Sometimes they're doing it just to signal their own values to their peers, to say, I'm going to condemn this person as a racist, just to indicate that I am not a racist, right? But the positive form of, of mimetic contagion, the, the dropping the stone from your hand and walking away, social media makes it impossible for us to witness that process. Um, people who choose not to participate in stonings, we don't see their, their positive action. Um, it's just silence. And so in that sense, I think social media has a pretty profound impact in that it exacerbates our very worst impulses and can sometimes make it difficult to recognize our best or to imitate the best impulses. There's something else at work, too. In, in that narrative, a woman taken in adultery, I heard someone make this point in a talk a number of years ago, but it's always stuck with me. There's that moment when, when Jesus gets down on the ground and writes something in the sand. And we don't actually know what it is that he wrote. He says, I always wondered, what was he doing? Why, what was he writing? What was that about? <laughs> and she said, I've come to the conclusion that what he was doing was getting down on the ground so he could look into the woman's eyes and see her and <laughs> see her seeing him, which is totally anathema to to the, the social media environment, isn't it? You don't see the other person. You don't know who the other person is. You don't have to make that, that kind of almost biological connection That's with right. this human being as a physical entity in front of you with whatever their fear or, or anger or whatever emotion that they have uh, on their face in, is directly in front of you and 
know that they're looking back at you. There is no, you know, to use the jargon of the day, there's no mutuality of gaze, is there? It just cuts us all off from that. And so yes. language suffers. So the, the impersonality of the experience, I think certainly it lowers the barriers to participation in these kind of online shame storms because right, you never have to kind of steel yourself against the humanity of the person uh, who you're attacking and you never see the consequences, right? You're not, um, at the end of it, you, you're not confronted with the corpse of your victim right. <laughs> um, to be rather sort of, sorry, a little blunt about it. You just sort of, you know, you, you go and um, pick up your afternoon coffee and you go on with your life um, completely unaware in many cases of what you've done to someone or what you've contributed to. In the journalism days when, when I was, you know, a cub reporter in small town journalism, every story that you wrote had at the back of it the idea that there was a very good prospect almost 100% prospect, that you were going to meet the subject of that story in the lineup at the grocery store or in the lineup at the, at, at, at the cafe or wherever. Because you were writing about them, you would have to, you would have to bank on meeting them in a, in a small-town environment or even a medium-sized city. At some point, you would encounter them. That doesn't happen anymore, does it? Or at least it's, it's very much removed from the experience. And certainly in terms of, of social media, it's, it's, it, I would wager to say it's virtually non-existent, that, that risk or that possibility. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I think and this is one of the problems of a, of a mass society in general is that we don't actually know the people that we're commenting on mm -hmm. and, and we're likely never to meet them. But there is a you, you, you talked about this question of whether uh, about the, the idea of kind of violating a person's trust and publicizing a private conversation. And you'd suggested maybe this has to do with the medium. There's a deeper problem here. And maybe we can we can draw this out a little bit. You can help me. Um, which is that I think that our, and again, this relates to the question of why language is important and why it's important that language points at truth. And as a, a prerequisite to language pointing to truth, we need to have a sort of an understanding that truth exists as, a, as an objective and a real thing that's meaningful. And that provides a basis for not only a common spoken language or written language, but a moral language. And, and I think we've lost that. And what cancel culture represents to me is it's it depends on and it deepens a state of profound moral confusion and what i mean by that is that it rewards all of these impulses that we would traditionally have thought of as as sort of vices um, so it rewards people who rush to judgment to condemn other people who behave vindictively um, mercilessly and and it really suffocates you know, intellectual humility, kinds of people who would say, maybe I don't know enough about the subject to, to pronounce judgment. Uh, it drives out that impulse. It drives out our impulse to be charitable and generous in our interpretations of other people's motives, to be forgiving, um, to offer a path of redemption. Um, it makes us afraid of pursuing what is true um, because it, uh, it very frequently cancel culture is, is, uh, is about making it impossible to, in, in, in some cases, cancel culture targets people who have violated kind of well-established social norms. But in many cases, the people who are targeted by this are targeted because they you know, subjected a certain proposition to philosophical inquiry, where certain people have decided that it should be off limits to such inquiry, um, or they've, they've stated certain truths that are uncomfortable or unpopular somehow. Um, so it makes us very afraid of pursuing truth and of saying what we really think. It punishes 
people who are courageous in their in the defense of their friends. And you know, my accuser in this case, I won't get into his background, but he's someone who, by his own admission, essentially feigned friendship with me for his own purposes, recorded conversations, asked that I delete those conversations, and then sat on them for a couple of years until it was the opportune moment to use them to destroy my career. And this kind of person is rewarded in this climate. Um, he was treated as sort of a brave whistleblower who was behaving heroically. And of course, any society that has a sense of moral proportion or is, or is engaging in sort of clear moral reasoning would recognize that conduct as, um, I mean, it's nothing short of traitorous. When you think about the sort of Dante's Inferno and the very lowest level of hell being reserved for, um, well, for, for traitors, particularly traitors against their benefactors, against their friends and people who've helped them. And the reason is that that kind of betrayal um, destroys the basis for social trust, um, which is something that it's incredibly precious. It is very much the sort of the glue that binds society together and makes freedom and life in a civil society possible. So um, in my view, people who sort of willfully destroy that fabric, who, who undermine our, the basis for trust, for friendship, for openness, uh, this, is a, this is a terrible thing to do no less than people who, who corrupt the meaning of words uh, to use them for their own purposes. So that's, that's kind of the real issue here is, is that we've entered into a state where we seem to lack a coherent moral vocabulary to make assessments about what's right or wrong. That's a big problem to me. <laughs> yeah, in, in, in Pieper's book, or uh, his essay rather, um, in book form, he posits that, uh, as I understand it, that that essentially the glue that holds a great deal of society together is flattery. And he traces that, that continuum from sophistication to sophistry to flattery to the death of communication. And he doesn't mean flattery just as saying nice things about you, but rather as instrumentalizing conversation and therefore the, the human to whom that conversation is, is directed or, or, or engaged, which as he, he argues is not, I think, is not conversation at all. And there's a passage that I'm just interested to see how you would respond to this when he talks about what the nature of flattery is and its effects, the business of flattery, really. And he says it's not only a sex, sensuality, vanity, nosiness, and sentimentalism. There's cruelty and schadenfreude and the vicious enjoyment of others' misfortune. There's the obsession with slander, the frenzy to destroy, and the readiness to accept radical answers to go for the in quotes a terrible phrase, but to go for the final solution. I'm, ju I'm just wondering how much that resonates with you, given, given what you've, you've been through. Because as I was reading it, I was thinking, bingo, that sounds an awful lot like the things that, that, you were, that you have been put through in this instance alone. And if we can go a little bit further, that seemed to happen pretty much multiple times a day in the media maelstrom as we know it. Yeah, absolutely. And so you'd, you'd suggested that he's identifying flattery as a glue that holds society together. And, and, I, and I, I would dispute that characterization a little. I think he's suggesting that our propensity for misusing language in this way um, is actually a kind of a social solvent that it, that it, it dissolves bonds and makes communication and uh, impossible and makes it impossible for us to actually live with other people, treating them as equals um, and, you know, with, with uh, imbued with, with dignity and, deserving of, of respect. So 
his definition, so he, he takes his, his characterization of flattery, this goes back to Plato's Gorgias dialogue, and it's one of my favorites, um, and it's actually kind of the, the, the basis for the book that I'm trying to write, but um, in the Gorgias, the, so the, the Gorgias himself is a teacher of rhetoric, which is a branch of sophistry, and Socrates is talking to him about the purpose of rhetoric, and Gorgias and his student Paulus, who's kind of a young Bulgarian, um, they're defending rhetoric as the greatest art because basically you can use it to get what you want. You can you can sort of you can convince people that good is bad and that right is wrong, and um, you, know, you can use it to escape punishment for your own misdeeds and to punish other people, to punish your enemies if you're if you're a talented enough rhetorician. And this is obviously troubling to Socrates. <laughs> um, and, and at one point he kind of gets, he gets Gorgias to admit that what rhetoric is, it's, it's the art of producing strong convictions in people, but without necessarily educating them as to what is true or good. And that describes, I think, so much of, of our discourse today um, is it's, um, it's an attempt to appeal to sort of the lower parts, the, the more irascible parts of people's souls is how someone described it to me the other day um, by, by agitating them or by flattering them. And, and he talks about flattery here in a, in a pretty broad sense, as you alluded, that it's not just flattery as we think of it, saying that someone looks nice today or that you know you enjoyed the article they wrote or something, uh, which may be actually quite benign. It's, um, he says, so Plato says that the, the rhetorician is basically like, it's the equivalent of the sort of the pastry chef of the, of the soul. Um, it's pleasing to hear the rhetorician and it might be pleasing for any number of reasons. It might be because what they say is entertaining, or it might be because it, um, let's say it confirms our biases and our prejudices. Maybe it makes us feel justified in the hatred of our enemies, or it gives us that sort of pleasing feeling of, of indignation or something. So it pleases us somehow, it flatters us, but it's not actually good for us. And so where the rhetorician is like the pastry chef of the soul, the philosopher, the one who seeks the truth, is kind of like the doctor he administers the medicine and it may not be pleasant, but it's actually good for us. One of the questions that arises there is, well, how do we insulate ourselves against this susceptibility to flattery, um, given how, how much it, it makes us easy to control? So the talented rhetorician or the talented sophist, and here I'll, I'll the, my accusers are basically, interestingly, my, the anonymous accuser here someone who openly identified himself with the sort of the antagonist in the Gorgas dialogue. So he actually, he's someone who really believed this, this view of life that you should use rhetoric to manipulate people, to get what you want, to exert power over them. So they're, if they're sort of the, the talented rhetoricians, well, then everyone else who's allowing themselves to be taken in, they're, they're just, they're succumbing to flattery. And, and the question arises, I think we're all very susceptible to that. So how do we inoculate ourselves or how do we insulate ourselves against that so that we're less easily manipulated? This is not meant as flattery, but thank you for uh, making me reflect on, on how I was using a particular <laughs> set of words in a sentence, saying that, it's, that flattery is, in a, in a sense, the glue that holds society together. I meant it in the way that heroin is the glue that holds a group of heroin addicts together, right. a group right. of junkies together. Um, right. it, it can be in, in, enormously destructive. Or crack is the thing that holds a, a group of crackheads together until they they turn on each other. I saw a, a, a there's a great column recently in the Wall Street Journal by the Nebraska Senator Ben Sass, who argued that what um, what America and I would extend that to certainly North America and possibly much of the Western world 
needs as an intervention against clickbait crack was his, was his, his term. And he asked a, really, asked a really pointed question in the column, which goes to, I, I think, um, some of the fundamentals of what we're talking about here, in the sense that it's not just people of ill will who are doing these things. It's not just people who are getting some kind of gratification of being part of an in-group out of it. There's actually an economic driver to it. And his, his, the quote is, ask the New York Times what its algorithms are teaching it about monetizing anger. Uh, which I think is probably the sentence that every citizen uh, on this continent, at least, should be reflecting on. And and Pieper actually uses the term the merchandising of wisdom in in the conversation about flattery, because he, his argument is that well, drawing from Plato and the, that whole thing about the sophists is that it's 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 the instrumentalizing of it and the profiting from it that that is really what makes it so destructive. I'm wondering what what your thoughts are. When we look at, when we ask, you know, about the New York Times monetizing anger or we look at, at how the media or social media enable these things, how much should we allocate in terms of responsibility there and how much of it is our own responsibility as citizens to speak out against it when the price is the price that, that you very, very unfortunately and very innocently happen to pay? This is um, <laughs> this is this is where I, I'm afraid that I don't have good answers. I, I think that we, we certainly each of us has a responsibility for our own souls and for putting our own souls in order and living in truth and um, taking responsibility for doing so. Uh, it's very challenging, and this is where I, I think I, I have to lay. This is where I sort of I part ways with some of my libertarian friends in this sense. Who think well? You know, if you don't like the impact of social media on your brain, just turn it off. I mean, the challenge is that this stuff is—it's um, uh, the, the kind of pseudo reality that's been constructed there. And I'm using Pieper's term self-consciously. It's—it's um, it's really challenging to escape from it. And I mean, they've devised ways. They recognize the sort of there are weaknesses in the human brain. Um, we're not built to process these kinds of constant dopamine hits. It's profoundly addicting. So I, I, I can't say that it's just a matter of personal responsibility. It, it is, but given how pervasive, how ubiquitous, how almost inescapable these tools are, how it's becoming more and more difficult to get by in the modern world if you don't have a smartphone. I mean, if you lived in certain parts of England during the crackdown, or I'm sure other jurisdictions, if you don't have a smartphone, you're not getting into restaurants. You can't conduct your daily business without being immersed in this in this pseudo reality to some degree so there has to be some onus on on big tech to try to mitigate these trends but i think it's it's partly it's built into the architecture of them so that's um this is where i'm i'm just sort of a pessimist i'm uh, i'm very worried about about where all of this is heading um peeper talks about you know peeper talks about the pseudo reality and I'm not sure how to how to best explain this idea. It's the same kinds of thing that, um, that Eric Vogelin described as a secondary reality. But what characterizes both is that they've ceased to have their roots in truth. So to Pieper, he's talking about the sophists or the rhetoricians who manipulate language, uh, who sort of change the meaning of words, and um, 
and in so doing, they can they can construct an alternate reality that's no longer grounded in truth. Vogelin talks about a secondary reality wherein people have sort of lost their roots in the um, kind of the divinely given order of being, and so we're trying to construct a new reality, sort of uh, out of thin air, as it were, uh, or out of um, uh, kind of abstractions. And and there's just this is this is incredibly dangerous because without roots in truth, um, well. <laughs> I mean, Vogelin's insight. Vogelin was also a scholar of totalitarianism. Uh, these are the conditions under which um, horrendous, horrific um, uh, abuses and violations of human dignity occur, because we've ceased to be grounded in any kind of binding, by any moral binding moral truths. So, so this is what like what keeps me up at night is that um, as we kind of fall more into this, we're cast into this kind of pseudo reality that is bolstered and fortified by uh, the digital worlds that we inhabit uh, that really don't that, that really are a kind of pseudo reality it will become more and more difficult for us to apprehend what's true to find our roots in the order of being and um, people with no roots are very easy to control and to manipulate yeah if i remember correctly and i think i do uh, the one of the terms Vogelin uses is the gnostic dream world which <laughs> pretty much captures, I think, most of existence these days. But but uh, just coming back to, and just a uh, last couple of questions here, but coming back to uh, Pieper, he, it's actually rooted in economics as well. And I think that's what Ben Sass was alluding to. It's, it's, it's rooted in economics. It's rooted in what capitalism, and it's re- rooted in free market economics to a certain point. Do, would you agree with that, that, that our fealty to the capitalist system bears a, a measure of responsibility for the abuse of language and the abuse of power? Because if, if it doesn't cost you anything to say anything, to say something rather, but you still get a benefit out of it, well, that's the market, right? Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? I, I would. Um, this, could, this could set off a very long conversation <laughs> about how the, sort of the logic of well, we could have a conversation about how the logic of liberalism, by which I include economic liberalism, has contributed to these conditions. And I guess this goes back to Pieper's point that the sophist, the one who uses language, who corrupts language, um, uh, and employs flattery. So one of the defining features of flattery, it's not just that the person likes to hear it, it's that you have an ulterior motive, and you're trying to use the person for your own ends. And so you're not actually treating them anymore as a partner in dialogue. And I think there's something about the kind of the kind of the emphasis on personal autonomy and, and radical individualism that is inherent to some degree within uh, the liberal ethos that maybe contributes to that, that, that to some extent, I wonder if we've actually ceased to feel ourselves to be part of a human community where we have you know, sort of reciprocal responsibilities to each other if it's all just about sort of maximizing our own interests, well, why not? Why not use other people? I, I was asked a, in a conversation just the other day, uh, someone asked, well, from a, a political vantage point, why wouldn't politicians engage in flattery? Why wouldn't they corrupt the meaning of words, basically, given how effective it is and how much people crave being flattered in that way. If you don't do it, your opponents will certainly do it. And there's probably very little to be gained if, as a politician if you're telling people the truth all of the time and trying to do what's good for them rather than what they want. So yeah, this is a this is a tricky question. What what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I come back to a simple thing when that the phrase when people say, "Well, I'm just saying," 
I go ballistic because I don't know you're never just saying like you don't just say because if you just say you're saying nothing and and I do believe in the old IRA slogan don't say anything but if you have to say something say nothing I mean there is a certain logic survival logic in that but if you're just saying um, you're just you know throwing pennies away you're not just saying you never are just saying words actually have meaning and if you're not communicating with me at a at a level at which we we are both striving to under to grasp that meaning then you're not seeing me as a full human being precisely what what you've just alluded to i I guess my my last question would be what is to be done what are you doing what what you're you know you're a writer in exile but you're not obviously you're doing a book you're not stopping writing you're you're continuing to write from your position of exile what is to be done for the rest of us um, rediscover our roots in truth uh, is, I guess, a simple question. Um, you know, to the extent I think uh, macrocosms mirror microcosms, and and vice versa, obviously. Um, so I think that the kind of the corruption of our political order, um, the rise of a kind of anti-culture in the media and of these mediums that seem to be dehumanizing us. Um, well, they, I, I said that I don't, I don't think that it's fair to say that individuals bear full responsibility for fighting against these things because it's, it's very challenging to sort of to opt out of them. But, but there is some level of responsibility. I, I think that um, if, I mean, Plato talked about how society is the souls of men writ large, right? Um, these are reflections of the kind of the collective individual character of all of our souls. And so I think at the individual level, we do have at least some portion of the responsibility to try to, to try to set our own souls in order to try to, as I said, to kind of guard against or, or armor ourselves against that susceptible ability to flattery. And that includes, that includes things like confirmation bias, right? that we have to be very cognizant not to just believe things because they it makes us feel justified in our prior beliefs or in our especially in our hatred or our contempt for others. I think we need to demonstrate a commitment to truth, by which I mean we need to kind of cultivate the capacity to discern it and and have the courage to speak it. And the discernment is is challenging, partly because we live in a culture that is basically that has sort of largely said that truth doesn't exist as an objective fact, moral truths, I mean, that the true and the good and the beautiful and that justice are all totally sort of fungible and subjective. And I think we need to get away from that. That's, um, that's, uh, that sort of seems to be the root of the problem. Maybe embracing more silence in our lives and more time to reflect quietly and deeply so that we're not as, um, as easily taken in by these kind of by these sort of pseudo realities that are being constructed all around us, it is a challenge.